Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, A Vision for You. This morning we have a special edition meeting. Um, my name is Christy and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and today is Sunday, September 9th. This morning, as I mentioned, we have a special edition meeting of A Vision for You where we invite a group of panelists to speak on their experience, strength, and hope. And today we will have a group of panelists speaking on step two. So in step one, once you've accept, accepted step one, you've realized that anything that comes from your own resources, your own effort, your own good intentions won't solve your problem, that your human resources alone aren't sufficient. So once you've accepted that, step one becomes the foundation of your recovery and you begin to change. Step two involves believing that a change is possible, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Today we will hear from three compulsive overeaters who will share their experience, strength, and hope on what step two is to them. We've invited Kathy, Deb P., and Robin B. to share. I will now ask that Kathy press star one to unmute and please go ahead. Hi, good morning, everybody, and um, thank you um, for inviting me. Um, step one, um, where should I begin? Um, let me share a little bit about my um, experience, strength, and hope, and cut, well, from there roll into step two. Um, luckily, um, when I walked into the rooms of OA, I was um, blessed, and I really feel I was blessed with the gift of desperation. And I truly hope that all you newcomers out there are, are are similarly blessed because I think once we hit that rock bottom that we really um um our our ears become open and our um and our eyes are open and we're willing to change. And that that I think is the critical juncture here. Um where I've been, well let me tell you, where I've been is it was um a little bit about me you know my my hobby with compulsive overeating probably really manifested my itself during you know those tween years and teen years you know um i became obsessed with um my weight um i wanted to be smaller than i was um no matter what i weighed it wasn't enough um the laxatives the um diet of the month um you name it i tried it and you know for a while it worked um it worked it worked and um i thought i was in, i could control my weight um you know just a little bit about me spiritually you know i was brought up in a home where god was present um and it wasn't over the top religious it wasn't under the top religious you know um um it was it was just a part of the thread of our home life and um but what what happened with me was as the food got bigger, God got smaller and smaller, and he got more and more distant because what I was doing was I was making food my god and um and it was my higher power it was I was at the holy grail, the altar of food um, um, from there it just it just kept going and going and going and got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, I went from starving myself to binging, and it was like um, a pendulum that swung back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to the point that I couldn't control my weight anymore, and it just started spiraling out of control, and I just came, gave up. I just went deeper and deeper into the food, and it, I would say it was probably 30-plus um, years that I just 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 the disease ruled my life. I spent so much time finding the the where I could get my next binge, finding out um um where I was. I mean the lunacy of going out with friends at three and four o'clock in the morning, um, driving them to get food because they were drunk as a skunk and I was the only one sober or um, you know, stealing food. It just it just went on and on and on. And the net effect was my life was truly, truly out of control. 
Um, I was a raging maniac. I wasn't pleasant to be around when I was in the food, um, screaming, yelling, um, getting pulled over by the police for driving down the road like a lunatic. Um, my husband didn't want to be around me. Um, my kids just, um, they saw me coming and they ran, and they ran like mad. My entire home life was in shambles and my work life wasn't far from it. And when I came into OA, I really wasn't there for anything else, to be totally honest. I was there for one thing and one thing only, and I was there for vanity. And I wasn't there for sanity. Um, I just looked at the sponsor line, saw all these people who had taken off a ton of weight, and they had kept it off, and I thought, freaking day, whatever they're doing, I'll do it with them, because that was um, what I was um, there for. But it was really weird. From the minute I walked into OA, I felt a God presence, and I remember wanting to speak up, and it was like this voice from behind me that said, shut up, sit down, and listen, because you know nothing. You know absolutely nothing. You're, you need to learn, and you need to learn with your mouth closed. And I really felt like that God was sitting behind me in the row behind me in the, in the OA meeting with a baseball red bat ready to slam me over the head if I opened my mouth. And I shut my mouth, and I listened. But I was still fighting the program. I was there for one thing and one thing only, and the minute I got down to my ideal weight, I was going to, going to check out. Um, I didn't want to use the big book. Um, I just did whatever my sponsor said. If she told me to open a page and read it, I read the three lines, and I closed the book back up. I wasn't about to open it. And, and I figured, how long can I do this? And I'll never forget, this was April when I first walked in, and somehow I was um, you know, on the stone-cold sober list. And it was now the middle of July, and I thought to myself, there's got to be more to this program because I can't hold on any longer. And at that point, I was ready to listen, and I started asking people, what are you doing? What are you doing? And everyone pointed me, them, me back to one thing, and that was the big book. And the big book is the reality. It, it brought me back to um, um, that there was a problem, and I was an addict. And as much as I wanted to check out, my drug of choice was food. I couldn't check out any longer. The, the, the list of reasons to identify out just get, got getting canceled out one by one, one by one, and I had no choice to, but to check in. And I took step one very easily. I knew I had a problem. I mean, and, but by the way, the solution, step two, and working the steps, I finally realized I had to embrace them as heartily as I embraced step one. And it's, from there, the journey really began. You know, um, I always loved Fred the CPA in the big book because, um, um, you know, Fred, um, Fred was me. I'm a CPA by trade. I could totally relate to Fred. Fred was right up my alley. And I thought, okay, he's gone down to meet the IRS. So what does he do after he's successful? He goes off on a binge. Well, heck, I could do that. We finished up an audit. What do we do? We go out and binge. And I love the rationalization of Jim, the milk and the alcohol. You know, heck, I used to, when instead of milk and the alcohol, I'd put fiber in my food. Heck, I, if there was a lot of fiber there, I could eat it. But all of a sudden, I started identifying in and seeing myself. And I realized at that point, there had to be, if these guys could turn their life and will over to a higher power, and the outcome was success, it wasn't failure. It wasn't that they were going to lose everything that was their families. And at that point, they were ready to embrace their families. And that was when I realized the big book was the answer, and I needed that solution, and that was a higher power, and I was willing. And I loved um, in the big book where um, 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 
um, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a quote in the big book. It says, some of us try to avoid the issue, hoping against hope we, we are not true alcoholics. But after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. And I remember that, the millions of reasons, identifying out, identifying out, and to set myself apart from the group. And it was, but then it was, I realized this program, I really needed this program. And I started working with a vengeance. I attacked the big book because I realized it didn't matter how sober I was. If I wanted to stay sober and, and not be sober and crazy, I would need to fully embrace this program of recovery. And the key to this program of recovery is a spiritual awakening within me and to cultivate that in all my thoughts and actions. And when I think about um, why, you know, it goes on in the big book, it says to be doomed in alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face, but that was the alternative I was faced. I knew that I was going to have the death. I had had the gallbladder taken out. I had had my blood pressure was through the roof. Um, I was um, diagnosed as pre-diabetic. So I knew death was knocking on my door. So it wasn't real easy to make. It was as much as the choice was so obvious to the normal person, I was still questioning the choice of, of embracing this program of recovery. And... But, you know, when I look at that, I think about, but isn't that the reality of the disease? We can choose to fight step three, tooth and nail, but do we win or we re- why are we really fighting it so hard? I said the reality is is that when we stop fighting three steps, is the more we fight step three, it is often a question is that we truly haven't taken step one and two. The reality is that we often don't want to let go of the disease. We fight the release because we are terrified as to what as to what our lives will be like without the bakery boxes and the cellophane bags. We truly don't trust God to make things better or to show us an easier, gentler way. In fact, at this juncture, we believe the promise and and are are nothing but hooey. But the reality that just kept facing me time and time again was recovery. When I was in meetings, I saw recovery. The voices of people, the body language, their facades, that I could see the promises coming true in their lives. And at that point, I realized as much argument as I wanted to debate as to why this program wasn't going to be valid in my particular life, I couldn't face, I couldn't stop denying the unquivocal truth of seeing recovery in every thought, action, and word of the people that were out there, the, the people that were my compatriots, my fellows in the media. And at that point, I stopped the fight. And when I stopped the fight, this program became so much easier, so much easier. It just was became, it was something I could do. And it, it didn't take a lot of time. It was something I embraced and loved. And the, and the promises were coming true left and right. And they still are coming true. The surprises are just amazing. And for those of you out there, you know, your, your higher power is basically, it's like being at a bus stop and it's the guy sitting next to you on the bench. You can kind of glance over and he stares back, but, you know, there's real no conversation. Or you can say good morning. And that's what it is about embracing your higher power. It's a way is not a religion. Um, people each have their own individual relationship with their higher power. You know, like Bill and Ebby, choose your own, pick your own. God, you know, your your higher power is flexible and he's willing to meet your needs however you want. So if you want a short conversation, like the guy on, on the bus stop, have a quickie. But no, he's sitting there, he's waiting for you. He'll be there when you get back. Or you can ha- take him along on your journey and hold his hand every step of the way, and he'll carry you no matter what you need. And with that, I'm going to pass, and thank you. Hello?
Now we'll introduce our next speaker, Deb P. Please. Good morning, Leigh. I was just going to pop in there. My name is, is Deb. I am a compulsive overeater, and I am recovered today uh, by God's amazing grace. Um, and I say I'm a real compulsive overeater. That's going to be a real quick qualification um, because when I honestly wanted to, I couldn't quit entirely. And um, it didn't matter how hard I tried, I could not quit. And um, I didn't know how to stop starting again. And once I started, I had little control over the amount I took. And that's all it took for me to know or for me to be able to say I am a compulsive overeater. Um, I just want to talk about a few things. I'm going to break the step down a little bit. I want to talk about the word agnostic. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about where I came in. Um, we'll have a discussion on where you might be because the book even lays that out for us. Um, I want to talk about the words doubt and prejudice. Very, very powerful words, and we have to talk about them because this step tells us that we have to get rid of our old prejudices. And I want to talk about hope. Um, so the step, the step says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. You know, I talk with people that this is not just a head nod step. Um, and the first three words taught me that, you know, came to believe. That implies that there is a process involved in coming to believe. There might be some time involved for me to come to believe. This might go faster for some people than it does for others. Um, but I do have to come to believe. And that means there's some things I'm going to have to do if it's a process. And what do I have to believe? What's it tell me I'm going to believe? That a power greater than ourselves could restore us. You know, it implies for me that I needed a power, that I had no power. And I did know that because I had really, really taken step one in my heart. Um, and I And I came to believe that there was a power out there somewhere didn't matter what it looked like or what I conceived of it to be, that there was something out there. And it taught me that I needed to be restored. You know, I needed to be brought back to what my natural state was because I was not in a natural state. And, um, of course, then there's those last words, what am I being restored to? And uh, that's just to sanity. You know, and for me that was being, as a compulsive overeater, that was being able to differentiate the truth from the false because I had lost that ability. And I was insane. I could not differentiate the truth from the false. And let me just start with that last part, right? Because if you're not sure you lack sanity, right, if you're not sure that you need to be restored to sanity, that just means you haven't fully taken step one. That's all it means, right? It just means you have a little more dancing to do with the disease, right? So... Mm -hmm. Just to talk a little bit about that um, coming to believe process, you know, page 46 in the big book describes the key elements of the process. And it's in the first paragraph. It's on the third line. It tells us what we need to do. It says, we found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice, I'll repeat that. We found as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice, that's part one, and part two is and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves. We commenced to get results, even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. So I've got two things I have to do. I have to lay aside prejudice, and I have to express a willingness to believe. And, um, you know, that laying aside prejudice, prejudice is discussed in the, is, is in the big book in the first 164 pages 15 times. Willingness is in there nine times, and believe is in there 52 times. I've got to get to the state where I'm willing to believe, and part of the way that happens is by laying aside prejudice. You know, Bill, um, God bless him, Bill takes three pages of his 16-page story, one-fifth of his writing time, one-fifth of his telling us his story is about dealing with one step, and that's step two. And it is the only step that I think he spends more time on in his story than step one, his step two. 
Um, and he describes his process for coming to believe, how that worked for him, pages 10 through 12. So that's a really powerful section to read. Um, I just wanted to talk about we agnostics because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to that a lot in the next few minutes. Um, and uh, agnostic is made up of two components of the word A, which means no, and gnostic, which means knowledge. No knowledge. Now, people in some languages, there's two ways to talk about knowledge, right? There's the book knowledge, right, that I can acquire through education, and then there's the knowledge that I have inside of me that I have acquired through experience. And I think we agnostics is about we who do not have experience. Maybe it's about we who might have a theoretical knowledge, but we don't have a practical knowledge. So we who do not know. Um, and so my belief is that chapter is written for all of us, all of us, no matter what our background, because we may come in here and we may know of God and we may know a lot about God, but we don't know him personally. Um, so where was I when I came, crawled in, crawled in? Um, I think uh, page uh, 47, um, there's, a, there's a line in here, um, and it says, I wish I had what that man has. I'm sure it, work if, it would work if only I could believe as he believes. But I cannot accept as surely true the many articles of faith which are so plain to him. You know, and that was part of my problem. I thought I had to believe if someone else believed. I was very confused, very confused. Um, Bill also tells it so beautifully on page 10. A second, while I flip back here. He says, I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. And then he goes on to say later in that paragraph, despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay it all. This was me. I totally got this when I read this about Bill. You know, I simply had to believe in the spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation. And here we go. This is Deb. But that is as far as I had gone. Next paragraph says, when they talked of a God personal to me who was love, superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. Right? That was me. I, just re I thought there was a God out there, but I didn't think God had any anything to do with me. And those were my old ideas, my old biases, my old prejudices that, that needed to, you know, to be gone away. They needed to go away in order for me to become willing, you know, um, you know, maybe you're in a different place than I was, and that's okay, right? Maybe, you can, maybe you're more like Roland Hazard, right? And Roland Hazard, he talks a little bit about where he was, right, on page 27. You know, he's just finished having a conversation with the doctor, and the doctor has told him that out, there are alcoholics of the hopeless variety who can recover if they have vital spiritual experiences, and Roland in the next paragraph says, our, talking about Roland, says, our friend was somewhat relieved for he reflected that after all he was a good church member. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in this case they did not spell the vital spiritual experience. Right? It's discussed again. Maybe, maybe again this is where you are, right? Page 93 talks about um, people who have good religious training. And it says, your prospect may belong to a religious domination. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. In that case, he is going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows. But he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. He may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. And so we do come in in different places, and we do come in with our own biases, our own prejudices, our own beliefs, and they take many, many different forms. Um, 
I don't think it matters where you come in because, you know, we've all got the same opportunity to get out. Um, so I'm going to pop back again. Um, there's so much here. It was really tough to, to narrow this down, but page 45. Um, 45 in the last paragraph talks about prejudice, right? It talks about different kinds of prejudice. Um, and this is in the chapter, We Agnostics, right? Who, and there may be people out there who don't think this chapter applies to them. I would challenge you to, to, to take a little to step back and to maybe to do some rethinking. So it tells us the types of prejudices in that last paragraph. Some of us have been violently anti-religious. There's a form of prejudice or bias. To others, the word God brought up a particular idea of him which someone had tried to impress during childhood. That was me. Perhaps we rejected this particular conception because it seemed inadequate. And with that rejection, we imagined we had abandoned the God idea entirely. That's me. That's what I did. I thought because I didn't take on someone else's conception, I had abandoned the God idea entirely. Here's some other folks. We thought that faith and dependence upon a power beyond ourselves was somewhat weak, even cowardly. Maybe that's a bias you walk in with. We looked upon this world of warring individuals, warring theological systems, and inexplicable calamity with deep skepticism. We looked askance at many individuals who claimed to be godly. How could a supreme being have anything to do with it all? I know folks who come in there, right? And who could comprehend a supreme being anyhow? Yet in other moments we found ourselves thinking when enchanted by a starlit night, who then made all this? There was a feeling of awe and wonder, but it was a feeling and it was soon lost. Right, so we all do have different biases and prejudices. You know, we think we have to believe the way someone else believes. Um, you know what I love, though? The book also clearly tells me that, um, you know, I, I always thought the road to God was really narrow and really limited. And if I didn't find the right way or do it the right way, I may as well just not even try. And um, beautiful, beautiful directions on 46, we found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. To us, the realm of the spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all man. So my job, my job is to, speak, is to seek. That was what my job was, right? Um, you know, I guess the question, the, the, my favorite, favorite paragraph in We Agnostics is on page 53. Um, and it's definitely how I got here. Um, and it definitely poses the questions I had to answer. Right? And it says, when we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, I did it to me. We could not postpone or evade. I had tried everything to postpone it and evade it. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Um, and I did have a choice to make. Um, so I just wanted to follow up with a little more about step two, right? So as a recovered person, do I ever have moments of doubt? Is my faith tested? Do I forget that God can solve any problem I take to him? You better believe it. Um, you better believe it. But the book teaches me on page 60 that God could and would if he were sought. And so the, the book teaches me what my job is today, which is to seek. You know, when in doubt, I seek. When tested, I seek. When I'm forgetful, I have you to remind me that my job is to seek. So step two, it's not a head nod step. It's a process, and it doesn't matter where you come in, with religion or without religion. We all have to lay aside our prejudice and then express a willingness, even just a willingness to believe. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Deb. Panelist Robin is done speaking. We will open up the line for questions and answers. And with that, Robin, please go ahead. Robin, press star one. Oh, thank you. Go ahead, Robin. Uh, hi, Katie. <laughs> Good morning, Vision for you. This is Robin. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, 
We're talking about step two. Step two came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I'm going to start out by telling you a little bit about myself and where I came from. Um, There was a time when I really would have rebelled at the idea that I was insane. (laughs) Um, I actually got hung up on this step for a long time. Um, I started out life, I started out in my life as a normal eater. Um, Life was going along pretty well until our our family had something hard happen. My dad died, and all of a sudden, in our little family, there were all kinds of raw emotions hanging out there, and I had no idea how to deal with them, um, no idea how to ask for help. So I did the best I did the best I could, and what that was was I found food. I found a substance that calmed me down every single time. I found, um, well, in the big book on page XXIX, it says, they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. And, oh, boy, was this true for me right away. Food, I found, um, calmed me down. It chilled me out. I could go underground. I could hide from my family. I could become invisible. You know, I was it was at the puberty stage of life, and um, out in the world there was a lot of scary things happening, you know, acne and, you know, all, all the boy-girl relationships and stuff like that. And I was scared of it all, but I could always go home and um, zone out with my food. So the stage was set pretty early for me. And as my life continued, um, I always turned to food when things got uncomfortable. I learned how to, um, you know, as the years went by, I learned how to look pleasant. I learned how to um, talk pleasantly, not make waves, not show any overt emotion. And my life issues got progressively harder to deal with because, um, you know, as I entered the adult world with adult problems, I had no coping skills other than using food to anesthetize myself. Um, You know, and over and over again I tell myself that I I just had to stop this ravenous eating. I had to get healthy. I had to put it down. I had to stop obsessing about food. Um, And, you know, by this time it wasn't just food I was obsessing about. I was obsessing about everything food-related. What are you eating? What are you making? How can I get my food? What do I look like? Um, am I as fat as that person? Am I fatter than that person? It was. It took up all of my um, all of my thought life. It was everything I was thinking about practically. Um, but you know, every time an uncomfortable emotion would happen, all my good intentions would be forgotten. Comfort was, you know, it was like I would have all these great intentions that I was going to get control over all of this scary thinking and and all of this food action. But then as soon as life stepped in, as soon as there was something uncomfortable that would would happen, I would just completely forget about my good intentions. And the only thing I could think about was comfort. I have to have comfort in this moment. And the food was all I knew that would bring that comfort. And, you know, I did try other methods to deal with the uncomfortable emotions um, because I knew that I needed another weapon other than food because food was kicking my butt. Um, but once the allergy of the body kicked in, once I took the first bite of whatever substance was at hand, I'd be off and running, all my good intentions forgotten. It was kind of like shutting the barn door after the horse had escaped. Um, While all this was going on, I married. I had four children. My body was getting bigger and bigger. It was getting more obvious as the years passed that I needed to do something about my unhealthy body and my inability to deal with life. Um, You know, I tried all the normal remedies, multiple diets that would work until an emotion hit me, self-help books, spiritual retreats, um, therapy, new age remedies, and then I finally found my way to OA, and that was 21 years ago. Um, I learned about the steps, and by this time I had no trouble with the fact that I was powerless over food. And, you know, okay, my life was a bit unmanageable, but insane? I don't think so. I had spent my life perfecting the image of Minnesota nice. I live in Minnesota. Um, I always smiled. My kids were always clean and well-dressed. My house was acceptable. I helped, I helped others. You know, I thought I was a good daughter. I was a good mother. I was a good wife. I was a good friend. I just had a little problem with food. 
And you know what happened to me? I spent 10 years in OA trying to find abstinence. I tried every form of abstinence I could think of. Um, I got terrifically caught up in the idea that an alcoholic can put down his, his substance, but I can't completely put mine down. That was my excuse for a long, long time. I need to eat to live, so how can I possibly find abstinence? And every time somebody told me about their form of abstinence, I'd drop whatever food plan I was on and try theirs. And when that didn't work, I decided that if I just worked the steps right or hard enough or long enough, abstinence would magically come to me. I prayed, I cried, I attended meetings, but I had no idea how to change my thinking. I needed help, and I didn't know how to ask for it because I hadn't um, developed that skill early in life. So I started to think, well, okay, maybe I'm not all that sane after all. <laughs> and then um, 11 years ago, I met somebody who was using the AA Big Book and the AA 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, and she was abstinent. And she was living a life I wanted to live. Um, you know, there was authenticity there. There was honesty there. There was health there. There was cheerfulness there. And I really wanted that. Um, so on June 13, 2001, I sat in a new OA meeting, one where they were all using the AA literature, and everybody had a sponsor, and everybody followed an abstinent food plan. And I sat in that meeting, and I f took the first step. I admitted that I was truly powerless over food, that my life was unmanageable. And finally, finally sitting there, I agreed completely that my thinking had not been sane, that what I had been doing and thinking, how I had been living my life was hopelessly unhealthy. And I was unable to think myself out of a paper bag. I really came to it that night. Um, my thinking was uncontrollable by me. I needed help with it, and that here was that help, and I surrendered. I had a perception shift that night. I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And I had no idea what I was in for. I just knew that these people had something I wanted, and I believed that they could teach me how to get it. Um, after that 10 years of sitting in, in a meeting, finally on this night I could understand that what the steps were talking about um, and that, um, you know, that, that this, the steps were the things that would open the door, that this process, this program would open the gates that would let a higher power flood in um, and that healing would start. You know, I'd been looking at the steps as something that I was just supposed to do, you know, take the action of doing. And I, kept, I had been thinking for 10 years, if I do this, if I do these steps, if I sit down, if I read this book, if I write it out, I will find abstinence. And in that meeting that night, suddenly I understood that I had it wrong. My perception was, was shifted. I saw that I needed a power greater than myself that would restore me to sanity, a power greater than myself that would heal my sick brain. And the way to that power was using the steps that would open the gates, that would clean me up enough so God could come pouring in. I did not see that until that night. So, and I hadn't even started my food plan yet. <laughs> but... Um, on, on page 12 in the big book, it says, it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. And, you know, for me, it was all about humility. It was all about giving up the fight to look proper and appropriate and in charge. And I have been abstinent since that next day. I haven't found it necessary even once to pick up a bite of extra food to deal with any emotion or hard situation. And I am here to tell you I've had a few hard situations, but I have not had to pick up the food. Um, these steps always, always, every time, walk me through the very same things that used to pull me underwater. Uh, my higher power started out as my sponsor, and that was my first experience um, that I had, admitting that I was out of tricks. You know, it was the first experience I had... Um, telling somebody that I wanted and needed help, and I was willing to believe she had something that might work for me, and I asked her to help me. 
then my higher power became the group, the steps and the program. And working the steps got all the garbage out of the way, all that sick thinking. I learned how to communicate. I learned how to ask for help. I learned how to come out of my closet and be a part of the human race. And as the garbage was cleared, the bridge just slowly opened and my higher power poured in. Um, You know, I see now my higher power, well, my higher power was always God. It's just that the connection was cut off. There was just too much me in the way. There was too much ego, too much Robin in the way of God, and I couldn't get out of my own way to let God in. And, you know, now I've come to see that the power that flows through me from my higher power is usually a perception shift. Every time I get stuck or have a hard time, it's because I've gotten caught up in old thinking patterns or thinking habits. I believe um, that I've got the answer, that I know what's right, that things should be a certain way. And I know that doesn't work. That's where I was stuck for 40 years. I know that doesn't work. My thinking gets me in trouble all the time, and yet I still expect it to work for me. So I pray for a perception shift, and then everything changes. I can see things completely differently. Uh, My current situation is that my husband is very sick. He hasn't been able to work since May, and the doctors don't expect him to be able to get back to work until January. And this is the kind of thing that would have paralyzed me with fear in the past. I would have been so caught up in... Um, the what-ifs, and I would have been totally unavailable in the moment. But, you know, working these steps continually keeps me right here, right now, in this moment. My husband needs help today. I don't have the luxury of feeling sorry for myself. His need is much, much greater than mine. And when I start feeling negative or selfish, I ask God to change my thinking, to shift my perception, and it keeps me right here, right now, in this moment. You know, this is a way of living that really works. On page Um, Eight, Bill says, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Robin. Thank you so much, Kathy, Deb P., and Robin B., for sharing your experience, strength, and hope on step two with us. We now invite those of you on the line to ask any questions of our panelists. In order for us to hear you, please press star 1 to unmute your phone. Once you are done with your question, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. Does anyone have any questions for our panelists this morning? Again, press star 1 to unmute your phone and go ahead with your question. Hi, this is Susan in Florida. Susan, go ahead with your question. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, all you ladies. I'm going to have to listen to the um, recording on this because I have to take notes on the spots that you all highlighted. I I do believe in a power greater than myself. I have been on, been working with the other group and you since the inception. My problem is... I have one problem. I do not eat non-abstinent foods, but I think when I get up, I'm a night eater. And when I get up in the middle of the night, I think I'm going to die if I don't have something to eat. And it's usually something that's perfectly on my food plan because my house is really clean. But I don't know how to get over this. I don't know how to get over this. I know I've been told to pray and read my book and that, but you know the phone list doesn't have times to call people, so that's a little bit of a disadvantage on our phone list. Um, I'd, I'd like to make a call in the middle of the night. I have made calls in the middle of the night already. I know that's what God wants me to do to get out of it. But I just feel right now, I just feel today I'm stuck in that one little place. Help. Thanks. Um, thank you, Susan. Did you, Susan, did you, want, um, did you want to direct a question to any of the panelists? No, any one of them can throw out some suggestions for me. I would appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Any one of the panelists, go ahead. This is Robin. 
You can go ahead, Robin. Okay, Susan. Um, you know, I've I, I've had experiences with this before too with other people, and one of the questions that um, that I've heard uh, brought forward is, do you have wheat in your life? You know, some people find that they're allergic to wheat, and they don't realize that there's wheat somewhere hidden in their food plan. Um, you know, so that might I, I have heard of people who have gotten up in the middle of the night because of cravings. And um, sometimes it's as simple as having an allergy to one specific food in your food plan. So that might be something that you could take a look at. Thank you. The problem is is that I don't have wheat, and I went for four or five years not getting up in the middle of the night. But mm-hmm. I get this obsessive thought mm-hmm. when I get up, because I, I go to the bathroom like ten times a night. And it's when I get up at one of those times that I just think I'm going to die if I don't have something. I don't, I don't have wheat. I don't have sugar flour or wheat. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Are there, Susan, did you have a, a specific question on step two that you wanted to direct to the panelists? How can I rely totally on my higher power when I get up at night to know that I'll be taken care of and I won't die? Okay. Um, it's Deb. I just have a um, just a comment and a, a just an observation. I think Susan, you had said earlier that you went for many years, right? Even though you got yeah. up, you went for years and you still didn't eat, right? Right. Okay. So, hon, you already know. You already have all the evidence. God's already given you all the evidence. You're not going to die if you don't eat. Yeah, You've already got thing. that in your own experience. Yes. You've already got that. Rely on that. You've already got that. And you've got the experience of other people, too, who would say, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die if I don't eat. I might be feeling something, but it's not going to kill me. Right? The eating eventually, the eating eventually will kill me. Right? It's just that's the thinking. That's the old thinking that we have. Right? Yeah. And so God's already given you the experience, and He's given it to you through your own experience and through the experience of others. That's, the other part is the lie. That's the lie that we want to believe. So that's, and that part of that is that, I, I think of it as that old prejudice, right? God can do, I didn't know that God could do anything, and I certainly didn't know He'd want to do it for me. And why in the world, with starvation, all kinds of other things going on in this world, would He care? about whether or not I ate something in the middle of the night. And all I can tell you today is I came to believe that he knows and he does. You can use my belief as your belief, if that helps. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Deb. Yep, thank you, Deb. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Susan. Does anyone else have questions on step two for any of our panelists? Please press star one to unmute your phone. This is Janice. Janice, go ahead. Thank you, Christy. Thank you. Um, Robin, you mentioned that early on in your recovery, first it was your sponsor, who you felt like was your higher power, and then the group. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how did that look day to day, and how did you use both your sponsor and your um group as your higher power? What did that actually look like in the practical sense? Hmm. (laughs) Um, Well, let's see. Um, I came in, like I said, very shut down and unable to trust people, um, afraid of people. Because I didn't know how to interact, I had I had no social skills. And what happened for me was that I found that I was given the safety um, in with my sponsor, with my group, to explore who I was and how I wanted to be in the world. Um, I was able to watch other people 
as they um, showed me what it means to be healthy. I was able to watch them in their relationships with other people. I was able to talk about the things that were mucking up the works. You know, I mean, I, I just, I remember so completely feeling that um, I was just, you know, a messy mess. I was just a spider's web, and I needed to be, I needed somebody to untangle me. And I came in with all of this um, entanglement. And what I was able to do was use the fellowship, people on phones, people in meetings, my sponsor especially, to help me figure out um, what was a character defect, um, how to interact with other people. And the way that worked then was it cleared the wreckage out of the way so that I could see, oh, my gosh, my higher power is out here. I could go out into the world and be kind and gentle with my mother, my children, my husband, because you all were teaching me that I was safe and secure and that I had this big, huge classroom that I could grow up in. So that that is how that happened for me was that I was given this this safety net. It was like it was truly like a classroom and I still feel that way. We get to practice on each other. We get to mirror to each other what we're doing. Um if I have a situation in the world that I don't understand, I can I don't have to talk to those people about it. I don't have to say to the clerk or my husband or my children, I'm really angry at you because you did this. I can come back to my my group, my sponsor, and I can say, this just happened. How would you interpret this? And she or they can help me figure out a way to handle that in a, a program-directed way using my steps, how to be of service and how to not muck up somebody else's life just because I'm having trouble. So... Yeah, I would have to say that that's how, how I've been used, able to use that fellowship is that it's just such a huge uh, classroom. It's a classroom. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Robin. Are there other questions on step two for our panelists this morning? I will thank you again to our panelists, Kathy, Deb P., and Robin B., and to everyone who participated today. We will now close the meeting with a reading from page 164 of the big book, uh, followed by the serenity prayer. So on page 164, in a vision for you, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.